0: If you have a copy of the Bible, open up to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1, turn your Bible on, flip open there. Um, As you're turning there, I'd ask, uh, if you think about it, this coming Thursday to be praying for us. We have a conversation um, with kind of a coalition of nonprofits uh, that are getting together to try to figure out the best way and most strategic way to address homelessness in our area, in this community surrounding us. And so figuring out how the Finding Hope Center next door will play a role in that process and what that would look like for us to provide furniture and furnishings um, to houses, to families as they move into to new apartments and new places to live. And uh, so, huge opportunity for us. We have meetings this week with potential partners for the Finding Hope Center. Um, and so it, it's neat as the Lord just continues to open up relational connections for us, that we're not even really seeking out at this point, but the Lord is just placing them in our lap. And yesterday we were able to help four families in the community with furniture and food and different supplies and things like that. So it's just starting to kind of snowball. And uh, it's neat to see the activity that Jesus is allowing us to be a part of. So Proverbs chapter 1, and then we're also going to look at Proverbs chapter 3 today, verses 5 and 6. Maybe you're familiar with those. So if you'll stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. Last week, uh, this will be our last week in the series, Me Me Versus You. And then next week, we're going to start in the book of Galatians. So this is our last week in the Proverbs. But Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, God's Word says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Then turn over to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, and Solomon writes this, To trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him, and He will make your paths straight. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have, Lord, to gather as your church this morning. Jesus, I pray now as we, uh, Lord, just seek you in your word in this moment, Father, that you would teach us. God, would you give us ears to hear from you today? God, would you give us soft hearts, Lord, not just to hear the word as James talks about, but to do something with it. May it make that journey from our heads to our hearts today. And may it mold us and form us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus as we live our lives on mission the rest of our week. Jesus, we invite your spirit to be among us today, God, that you would teach us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Years ago when I was back in seminary, I remember reading a quote and I heard it several times. I've heard it many times through the years. I'm pretty sure that was where I first heard it from a late theologian named A.W. Tozer. You might have heard of him before. If you're unfamiliar with A.W. Tozer, he was a pastor and a theologian that lived in the early, mid-1900s, ended up dying in 1963. and uh, We actually attribute a lot of our Christian thought and some of the ways that we think about God to his Bible teaching and the way that he taught people to understand the Scriptures. But he wrote a book uh, during his lifetime called The Knowledge of Holy*. And in that book, he makes a phrase, and maybe you've heard this before, and he said this, this is so important. He said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let me say that again. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And you hear a quote like that, and maybe you ask yourself, well, why? Why? Why, why does that matter? Why is that true? And if you go on to read his book, he talks about that what you think about God ultimately shapes the course of your life. And so when you answer that question, what do I think about God, the first thing that comes to mind when I think about God is ultimately going to shape how you live. Let me give you a couple examples. If you think that God is simply disinterested in you, this is Christian and non-Christian alike, if you think that God is disinterested in you, guess what? you're probably going to be disinterested in God. How you view God shapes the way you live. If you simply believe that God is just some cosmic bully who is out to get you, likely that's going to lead you to resist God. We see this often. If you simply think God is just superstition, then you're just going to run from him because you don't want anything to do with him. If you think God is just this demanding cosmic presence who simply wants what he can get out of you, what's going to ultimately happen? You're going to keep that God at a distance. But friends, what I want us to do today is I want us to run to the scriptures. And I want us to take that concept and that thought from from Tozer and, and ask ourselves, how should I rightly think about God? How should I rightly view God? Because if I learn to rightly think about him and rightly view him, born from a relationship with Jesus, it's going to change the course of my life. Because what comes to mind when I think about God is the most important thing about me. And here's what's interesting, and this is why we saved this one for week four. If we get this one right, it's going to inform every other relationship that we have. If I want to have good, solid friendships, it's going to come from a right view and understanding of God. If I want to have a good, solid marriage, it's going to come from a right view and understanding of God. If I want to be a parent that trains my children properly in the fear of the Lord, it's going to come from a right understanding and view of God. If I get this one right, the only, the, the only option is the other ones are going to continue to get better too. And so I want us to look at these two Proverbs today. So two Proverbs, three verses, two points for you today to really answer that question. How do I rightly relate to and view God? If you take notes, point number one is this. Fear God as Lord. We're just going to go here right out of the gate, all right? Fear God as Lord. Look at Proverbs 1 verse 7 with me again. We're just going to read the first part again to refresh our memory. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, fear often gets a bad rap in our country, in our culture, in our mindset. Fear gets a a pretty bad rap. We we think of fear, and we say that word, and I think traditionally, we just let our minds wander maybe to something that we are deathly afraid of. If I were to do a little survey in this room today and ask you what you are deathly afraid of, we'd probably make fun of you a little bit, because some of you all have some pretty weird, irrational fears. But I was simply thinking about that just in a brief moment this week. I am deathly, if you didn't know this, I am deathly afraid of spiders. I think that's called arachnophobia, but I'm not positive, okay? Now I tend to have this scenario that happens to me at least quarterly in my life where I'm driving down a highway, going at some pretty intense speeds, and out of nowhere a little tiny spider will drop down from my visor. Anybody else have been in this situation before? And you do everything that you can in your ability to maintain your composure in that moment. But I'm gonna be really honest with you. I have, I have State Farm insurance on my car. There's been times, this goes on the radio, I gotta be careful. There's been times where I've thought, you know what, I'm just gonna pull my car over into a field, I'm just gonna set it on fire. Because the, it's like the spiders just come out of nowhere. All the, And then you can't find them. I've never been able to find a spider after it comes in my car. I also don't like short clowns, but that's a, that's a story for another day ask me about it. It's a a great story. And you see, we take that idea of fear, things that I'm just deathly afraid of, and we say, okay, well, then I have to take that idea of fear, that application, and apply it to God. If that's what fear is, and Solomon says, I need to fear the Lord, then, then maybe that means that I need to be afraid of God. Is that true? Because then maybe we run to the other end of the spectrum." And instead, what we do living this side of the cross, living in the age of grace, the grace of Jesus, rather than being deathly afraid of God, we take verses like 1 John 4.18. You've probably read this before. It says there's no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. And so what we'll do is we'll run from being afraid of God and we'll form a different theology that says, because of the love of Jesus, I don't have to fear God anymore. God is my buddy. God is my friend. We like to go in the woods together and skip rocks and enjoy nature, because God is just my pal. I've even heard some people before, if this is how you pray, this is weird. But they say, hey, Daddy God, I pray. Y'all, that's, that's weird. I get the whole New Testament, Abba, Father. Abba means Dad in Jewish culture. That's weird. I'm just going to go ahead and flat say it. If that upsets you, email Joe. You guys know the drill around here, okay? (laughs) Now, with both of those, do I fear God or is God my buddy? There's truths present in both. But I want us to understand clearly, what does it mean to fear the Lord? We got to get this right to rightly view God. Know what he says here. Fear the Lord is what? It's, It's the beginning of knowledge. This is foundational stuff that Solomon is driving us to. So let's make one thing abundantly clear. First off, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, if you are not a believer in Jesus, if you are not a Christian who has repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, I believe that the fear of the Lord in the Bible means that you should be terrified of God. If you don't know Jesus, and Jesus is not your advocate between you and God the Father, you should be terrified of God. Because that means that without Jesus, you're responsible for your own sin, you're responsible for your own sin debt, and you must face the wrath of God on your own, Romans 6.23. You must face God on your own accord, and that should terrify you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, he said, But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him, referencing God the Father. Fear him who has the authority. God can, because he's the righteous, holy judge, throw people into hell after death. If we don't know Jesus, apart from Jesus, we should have a genuine fear of God. Because God is holy, and God is righteous, and God hates sin. Psalm 5, verse 4 says... We should genuinely be afraid of God. I don't want to stand before God without Jesus as my advocate. But if Jesus is my advocate, if I've repented of my sin and I've trusted Jesus as my Savior, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that Jesus absorbed God's wrath in my sin on my behalf. Do I still need to fear God? 1 John four eighteen said that perfect love casts out fear, right? Do I still need to fear God? And the answer is this, yes, but it changes. And this is so important for us to understand today. God is always true to his word. God will never tell a lie. God will always keep a promise. I don't have to fear the wrath of God anymore because of sin. Jesus absorbed God's wrath on the cross for me. Hebrews 2:17 says. But hear me this morning, God is still God. God is the magnificent glorious, righteous judge of the Old and New Testament. Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4 says that God is so holy that an innumerable number of angels are constantly, forever, for all eternity, flying around His throne with one job to say the word holy. That's all they do. Because He's that holy and He's that kind of a God now listen, because that's the God that we serve and the God that extravagantly loves us, He is still God. Therefore, He's still worthy of my fear. I don't have to be afraid of His wrath anymore, but I still need to fear my God. I don't fear punishment from Him anymore because He's true to His Word. And He said, Jesus absorbed that for me, but I still need to fear Him. So what does that exactly mean? What's the fear of the Lord? Let me give you a simple thought if you want to write this down. It's the submission to his authority as Lord of all. The submission to his authority as Lord of all. It means that we understand who he is and what he requires of us. I read one author this week that said, it's not a fear that causes you to run from him because you're afraid. It's the type of fear that causes you to run to him and bow because you submit to him. We don't run from our God anymore. We run to him and we bow before him. Because when we understand who he is and how magnificent he is, it's overwhelming and it's humbling to us. And it drives us to want to submit to him as God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, if you want to turn there quickly, uh, Paul talks about this a little bit more in depth. And it ties here to Proverbs 1 verse 7. And, and, and Paul, what he's talking about here is how, how this idea of the fear of the Lord, how it relates to us, like submitting to God, our sanctification, us growing in holiness. Look what he says here, Second Corinthians 7, one, He says, so then, my dear friends, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and of the spirit. So he's talking about sanctification here. Bringing holiness to completion in what? The fear of God. My sanctification, my pursuit of Jesus, my pursuit of holiness is driven by my fear of God. I submit to his authority and do, do what he says. Psalm chapter 24 says that God is the authority over all things in heaven, un- under heaven, and on the earth. Therefore, I need to submit to him. Now, notice what else Solomon says here in Proverbs 1:7 that when I understand the fear of the Lord, that actually will fuel my wise living as a a, a child of God. When I get the fear of the Lord right, that fuels wise living. Why? Because I understand who he is, and I want to do what he says. The foundation of wise living is fearing God, submitting to him, and then submitting to what he tells me to do. Let's pause here for a second. This is so important. I think sometimes we've got this false idea that if I do what God says, that's restrictive. That, that submitting to the authority of God as Lord of my life is somehow restrictive over me. If I have to do what he says, I'm restricted in what I can do. We've got to understand something here from Proverbs 1, 7 and really the entirety of the scriptures. That when you live in the confines of God's authority, it's freeing. Living under the umbrella of God's authority is one of the most freeing things for the child of God. It's not restrictive, it's protective. Look at this real quick, Proverbs 1, 7, the second part. Solomon says, fools despise wisdom and discipline. He goes on to say, when you reject or ignore the fear of the Lord, when you reject, ignore, or despise God's authority, he says, you're you're a fool. That's strong language. Nobody wants to be called a fool. Nobody's called a fool. I'm like, thank you for that. I really appreciated it. Fool is incredibly strong language. Why? Because it's foolish to not do what God says. Think of it this way. My my family and I, a month and a half ago, we moved into a new house just down the street from here. And we live on this corner lot in our neighborhood that once the weather breaks, remember back in, in September when we were looking at the house, when the weather breaks, at the end of the day when people are coming home, there's a fair amount of cars that kind of travel down our street as people are going in to the neighborhood. And so for our two girls, once the weather breaks and it warms up and they can go outside, the rules for them are going to be incredibly simple. You can have the entire front and side yard to play in. That whole thing is yours. Have a ball. We've got a fence in the backyard. You've got the entire length of the backyard. Go play. Have a ball. There's one spot you can't go. Don't go on the road. Just don't go past the sidewalk. You have everything else, don't go past the sidewalk. Because if you go in the road, chances are you're not going to pay attention because you're going to be playing with something. A car is going to come by, someone's going to be looking down at their phone, and they could probably hit you and hurt you, or maybe you could lose your life. Now, wisdom for my two girls would say, well, because dad is authority, because dad knows more than I do, because dad cares about me and dad loves me, I should obey what Dad says. He's given me all this freedom. Just stay out of the road. It's the title of today's message. Stay out of the road. What does foolishness say? Dad's keeping something from me. I need to go on the road. Because if I go on the road, there's something there waiting on me that he doesn't want me to have. My authority over my children should not be viewed as restrictive. I'm not keeping something from them. I'm keeping them from harm. And when they choose to live in the confines of my authority and choose to submit to me as the authority of their life, it's liberating and freeing. Because if they simply stay in the yard, they have nothing to worry about. Friends, the same goes for God. When we choose to live in the design of the fear of the Lord and live within the submission to his authority, it is the most liberating existence that we can have as a human being. We see this going on right now all over our culture. Just look at something as simple as sexual ethics in our nation. Because we choose to live promiscuous lives all over the place, people are having to take medication left and right just trying to justify the sinful actions they're engaging in. Where in fact, if you choose to live in the confines of the authority of God and the design that He set up, it's so freeing. You don't have anything to worry about. Think about something as simple as just choosing not to lie and tell the truth. The Lord told us to do that. Do not lie. He says, if you live within this standard in which I set, it's so freeing. Because you don't have to cover your tracks and try to make up a new trail. Just live in the confines that I set forth. We could go on and on and on. God says, simply live in the boundaries in which I set up, and you will have one of the most freeing existences that you've ever had. How? You fear God and submit to His authority. That's the first one right there. How do I rightly relate to God? Fear him and submit to his authority. It's freeing. Here's point number two. Trust God as father. Trust God as father. Look at verses five and six of Proverbs three again. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own understanding. In all your ways, know him. And what's he going to do? He's going to make your paths straight. Sometimes when we think of fear and trust, we think that they're mutually exclusive, that these are somehow two incompatible terms. Somehow they don't really work together, which in fact, as we study this further, you're going to see really clearly how fear and trust are almost one and the same when it comes to the child of God, that we're called to both because they both work together. Look at verse 5 with me again. Two competing thoughts here. First part of verse 5 says that we need to do the positive, which is what? We need to trust God, trust in the Lord. The, the, the inverse of that, the opposing thought, the negative thought here is what? Choosing to trust in ourselves, leaning on our own understanding. And Solomon's reminding us here in verse 5 that you and I as children of God, those who have repented of our sin, we have the opportunity and privilege to trust our God. Now here's what's interesting. That word trust there that we read in verse 5 of Proverbs 3 is a word, it's a, a trust that's driven from a place of security and safety. I trust someone because I feel secure and safe with them. I trust God because I live in the security and safety of his authority. That's where, as a follower of Jesus, I should feel safe and I should feel secure, is in the fear of the Lord. And because I feel secure with him, what do I naturally do? I trust him. See how these work together? But then Solomon says, what's that inverse? It's trusting myself, relying on my own understanding. We do this all the time. God, I know more than God does. That's like my three-year-old trying to explain to me how something works. It's like, shut up, kids. You don't know. That's what we look like when we try to tell God how we're going to run and direct our own lives. We're acknowledging our own understanding. Why is that dangerous? Listen to me. You understand, we were not meant to exist, understand, or navigate life apart from God. We were not created to do that. Instead, we were created to exist, understand, and navigate life with God. That kind of life is the only kind of life that makes sense. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We've referenced this many times these past few weeks. It's amazing how so much of the truth of the New Testament can be traced back to just the first few chapters of Genesis, over and over. Now watch this. You might be familiar with this story. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. So the serpent goes to Eve, and watch what happens. We're starting verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis. He said to the woman, "'Did God really say?' Joe's talked about this before, questioning the authority of God's Word. "'Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden?' And Eve, the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it. And then she adds to God's word. What does she say? Or touch it. God never said that. God said don't eat it. God never said anything about touching it or you will die. So the serpent chimes in. No, you won't die getting the Eve to question God's word. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, this is where we see God's keeping something from you. You need to step out of the security and safety of God's boundaries because he's keeping something from you. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's keeping something from you. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was delightful to look at. That was her problem. She she let herself soak in the sin. She let herself soak in the situation. Right? What's that old phrase? Uh, Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay and take you further than you want to go. Eve's first move should have been, shut up, serpent, and left. (laughs) But she decided to stay and engage in the thought, engage in in that whole situation. So she's delightful to look at. It was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So what did she do? Verse 6, so she took some of its fruit and she ate it. They were done at that point. She gave some to her husband, Adam, who was with her. This wasn't only the sin of the woman. Adam was there the whole time, and he ate it. What was Adam and Eve's sin that occurred here in the first six verses of Genesis 3? They disobeyed God. That's every sin. God says do this, live in the confines and boundaries of my security. That's base level fear of the Lord. What do we choose to do? We disobey Him. What fueled the sin of Adam and Eve? Pride. We know more than God does. He's keeping something from us. Every sin you and I commit is fueled from pride. I know better than God does. I know more than God does. God doesn't understand my situation like I do. Therefore, I must do this. Sin is always fueled by pride. But what always fuels pride? Self-reliance. I want to do this on my own. I want to understand things on my own. I don't want to trust God. I want to understand it for me. And what do we see in Genesis? We were never meant to discern or understand life apart from God. We were never meant to do it. And Solomon calls that here in Proverbs 3, relying on our own understanding. Instead, friends, what we've been invited into as children of the Father is to trust the loving heart of God. You see, there's some things that my children just don't understand because they haven't been around as long as I have. And there's some things because they have a limited understanding of it that they just have to trust me. They're not going to understand it, but they have to trust the loving heart of their Father. Their understanding is limited, Sometimes their understanding is skewed because of their experience, but they have the opportunity to trust me as their loving father. Our relationship with God is no different. My understanding of all things around me is limited. I don't think any of us in here would say we know everything about everything. You might have a teenager that's pretty close, but probably not you. We don't know everything about everything. In fact, we probably know this much about all things. We don't know anything. And so we've been invited to trust the loving heart of a father who says, don't lean on your understanding because you don't understand. Instead, trust me. It's significant to note here, too, that this trust, just like submission, isn't a one-time thing. Instead, it's the continual action that the Jesus follower has to engage in. Just as we continually submit to the authority of God every day, we have to continually trust Him as well. Look at the second part of our verse, verse 6. We don't rely on our own understanding. Instead, in all of our ways, we know Him. All of my life, all of my decisions, all of my actions, all of my choices, I choose to trust God. But then it takes a little bit of a deeper dive here. You see, trust in verse 5 was driven by our security and safety found in the Father. But in verse 6, it takes a deeper dive that's born from an extended relationship. Verse 5 was security and safety. Verse 6 is a trust born from intimacy. This is so important for us today. My Bible says here in verse 6, in all my ways, know him. Many Bible translations will say something like, in all of your ways, acknowledge him. Know or acknowledge is used uh, throughout the Old Testament. But most commonly, it's a word used to reference intimacy. Specifically, it's the word referencing the physical intimacy between a husband and a wife. You you can't describe that using any other Hebrew word. It's so perfect there. It's meant to describe this intimate connection that's found in that relationship. Let me show you an example. Genesis 4 verse 1. It says the man, that's Adam, was what? Intimate. That's the word know that we see here in Proverbs 3. That's the word acknowledge that we see here in Proverbs 3.6 that Adam was intimate with Eve. And what happened? She conceived and gave birth to Cain. You see, in verse 5, it's driven by security. In verse 6, it's driven by intimacy. I trust God because I know Him so deeply. How does that happen? It happens when I acknowledge Him in all my ways. That as I choose to trust God today, that takes me to a deeper level of trust in Him tomorrow. If I choose to trust Him today... I have a more intimate relationship with the God of the universe tomorrow. My intimacy and my trust with him grows and deepens day by day until trust just becomes part of who I am. I trust the loving heart of a father. Last part and we're done. End of verse 6. In all your ways, know him. Intimate knowledge. And then what happens? He's going to make your paths straight. That as I develop this intimate trust with God, that my paths will straighten out. That's a phrase that means the course of your life is going to be smooth sailing. Now, I read that this week and I was like, <laughs> Solomon, let me tell you, you didn't live through 2020, my friend. Solomon, for real. You don't know what some people are going through. Solomon. I've sure i trusted the Lord, I've done my best to do that, but Solomon, let me explain something to you. My life has not been a smooth course of sailing. Is Solomon telling us here, remember, always interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture. Is Solomon telling us here that for the Jesus follower, it's just going to mean smooth sailing the rest of your life because you trust Jesus. It's going to be butterflies and rainbows, you're going to float around three inches off the ground on a cloud, people are going to look at you and go, wow, they trust the Lord. That's not what he's telling us here. God never promises that. Read Paul's letters in the New Testament. You're going to find that out really fast. What's Solomon pointing us to in light of the other scriptures? That as my trust in God develops into this deep, intimate, personal trust in my heavenly Father, that I can be certain that the course of my life is in the center of his will. That's straight paths. That the course of my life is in the center of his will. And friends, can I tell you, there's no better place for the Jesus follower to be is in the center of the will of God. That's where you want to sit. That's where it's safe and secure. That's where you're at the deepest, most intimate level with the God of the universe. So what's our second reminder? We don't only fear God as Lord, but we trust God as Father. Let me read our quote in the beginning. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. But understand this, and then I'm going to pray. You know, apart from Jesus, we can't know God as our Lord. Impossibility. reason we can know God as Lord is because of what Jesus did for us. Apart from Jesus, you cannot know God as the loving Father. It's impossible. But through Jesus, we've been invited into both of those. That through Jesus, I can understand what it means to fear God and submit to him as Lord of my life. Paul talks about that in Romans 10. Through Jesus, I can understand the loving heart of a father because I see on the cross that fully expressed to me, John three sixteen. I see that fully expressed to me, and then I continue to trust God each day. You see, it all happens through Jesus. That's the starting point. That's the, the starting line that takes us on this race of fearing the Lord and trusting the heart of God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. Father, for the privilege that we've had to study your word this morning. I pray that today was liberating and freeing for us. God, I pray that today would help us have a right view of God. God, I pray that today would fuel us to a deeper trust in you. God, not not only to a deeper trust in your word, but a deeper trust in your in your heart. God, thank you so much for the wisdom we've been able to glean from the book of Proverbs these past four weeks. And Lord, I pray that it just continues to drive us to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Lord, as we sing now, I pray that it's a sweet sound through the corridors of heaven. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Uh Amen.